Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number two of the 2019 hurricane season, along with my uh, partner in this, meteorologist Luke Doris. Luke? Howdy. Howdy. Here we are. Howdy. Here we are. We have a special program for you today. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of history, especially Miami hurricane history. And we're going to have Dr. Paul George uh, on the podcast. Uh, Paul is a renowned uh, Miami and South Florida historian. If you've never been on one of his historical tours of Miami, downtown Miami, Coconut Grove, anything about the area, uh, you've really missed a treat. Uh, Paul does these things. I don't know how many. We'll find out in a moment how, how often he does them, but I know it's a number of times a month. And we'll be talking about the great hurricanes that have hit uh, Miami and how they affected life uh, permanently, how they change things in some cases permanently here in South Florida. We're recording this on June 25th, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10 on television or check Local10.com, the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app for current information. And also check out our Local 10 Hurricane special on Local10.com slash hurricane, Local10.com slash hurricane. The whole team was part of it. Luke, you were in the panhandle uh, uh, checking out the aftermath of Hurricane Michael, which was quite, uh, I think it was the the most moving and amazing part of the entire special. Well, thank you. It it was still devastated in the panhandle. I mean, uh, it's what I would have imagined Category 5 hurricane damage would have looked like seven months later. Uh, but there's, you see that, and you also see how people live life there, and yeah. it's still rough for a lot of folks yeah, there. It's, there's it's, a lot to unpack. From it's that. it's frightening. But the uh, the special it goes from the Panhandle to the Keys, and everywhere in between. Uh, I think you'll like it. It's on local10.com/hurricane, and be on the lookout for the Brian Norcross Talks Tropics newsletter. You can sign up for that on local10.com as well, and I'll keep you up to date. Uh, what's going on in the tropics. All right, right now in the tropics, I mean, the tropics are really the story of Saharan air, in other words, very dry air and high pressure, yeah. right? It's just that combination. And so all right, we have no tropical development possible while that is all going on in the tropics. Yeah, not much to say there. I mean, what, big, strong, high pressure over the mid-Atlantic and high shear and just, just, just all hostile to anything developing out there, which is great. You know, and that's not all that uncommon for this time of year, is it? No, and as a matter of fact, you know, the normal time that we have on average, the first named storm comes along July 1st. But we've already had one named storm. Mm-hmm. So we really would be on the second named storm, and that average date is August 1st. So we're way you know, ahead of schedule here in terms of averages. So there's nothing uncommon about what's happening except for this high pressure and Saharan dust that's been over South Florida, which has given us this extreme heat. It's been unusual for June. Boiling hot. You know, yesterday we hit 98 degrees. Right. Not only was that a record for the date, uh, it also tied a record for the month. It was also one of only... Uh, 11 times now that we've hit 98 degrees uh, or hotter. So we've hit 98, I think, 11 times now. Then we hit 100 once. once. So we're, we're talking top, you know, 13 <laughs> hottest days ever recorded for Miami we saw yesterday. Just boiling hot. And that 100-degree reading was the end of July in 1942, July 25th, I think. And that was the very end of the record at the Miami Municipal Airport, which doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And August 1st, they moved it to Miami International. 
So it was right at the end. I've always been suspicious about that 100. Now, most of my time in Miami, we didn't count anything before Miami International started a continuous record. So ever since uh, uh, August 1942, we've measured Miami temperatures only at the Miami International Airport. So it's been, in some sense, apples to apples. Yep. Where before that, the thermometer kind of moved around. So that 100 did not happen and has never happened officially at Miami International. You know what's weird? We've never hit 99. Yes. You'd think somewhere <laughs> yeah. in that mix you would have breached Well, it. it's just hard to get above 98. It just shows yep. you. Just because we have the ocean sitting right there, if it gets that warm, usually you either get thunderstorms or you get sea breeze, right? One, yep. of, the, one of the two kick it. All right, there's nothing, uh, so there's nothing going on in the Atlantic. In the Pacific, it looks like uh, a good chance that we're going to get something, and it's very late for the Pacific to have its first name storm. They, they, uh, there are only two uh, years where the first storm happened after this date in the satellite era, going back to 1966. So, wow. So it's uh, unusual. In fact, the whole world is quiet, which uh, I haven't seen any good explanation for. Hmm. So anyway, we'll keep an eye on that. All right. There's also in weather news, uh, we now are operating under a new, uh, starting from the ground up, American model. We all talk about the American model and the European model. Well, the American model is new, called the GFFFV3 for finite volume three. Luke, uh, how's it different? What's uh What's new? Brian asked me this about a week ago. He sent me an email, and you know, I had honors classes in high school, I had decent ACT, AT, ACT score. Uh, you you want to know where you stand with the brain horsepower? <laughs> Go start trying to research weather models and and truly try to under. I mean, way way out of my out of my league. I mean, to make heads and tails of exactly what is different about this is just a difficult question to mm-hmm. answer. The bottom line is. From best I can gather, and I know that there are people out there listening that know more about this than I do when it comes to these weather models, we're trying to chase down Big Daddy Euro. Um, and the the analogy that I kind of kept coming back to is we have an engine in the GFS model that's it's old. It's like getting up on 40 years old. Uh, still worked. Still good. But time for an upgrade. So we got an upgraded engine, lifted the hood up, and put in this FV3 and it basically gives a slightly better resolution. It was originally designed for long-term climate modeling, but it's also capable of doing day-to-day weather modeling. So uh, it's adaptable, and uh, and it's good. The, you know, it's still going to take some time before we know exactly how much better it is. I bet that they tweak it. I don't know. Uh, but it does have slightly better resolution. Uh, it's more computationally efficient, so we're going in the right direction. And there's some sort of a, a, a measurement, a metric, that m- determines how uh, how good of the forecast, how high the quality is. And uh, I think they measure it at the 500 millibar level across the entire globe. And this one is better so far than the old version, from right. what I've read. So basically, uh, I think the the bottom line here is that they started over with a more modern system. And now they can build on that. So the, this is going to be the basis of the American modeling system going forward, but we're just at the beginning of it. So, so, um, so good for the, the folks at, uh, at NOAA, and it's called NCEP, the National Center for Environmental Prediction, that uh, they're, they're making progress. And this idea of competing with the euro is a little bit of a 
false idea because we do so much more and they have bigger computers and do less. And there's a lot uh, to that. And someday, let's dedicate a, a program Ooh, here I'd like that. to models. Okay. All right. And let me just make mention of one other thing in Weatherworld. A couple weeks ago, a meteorologist named Joe Crane at a TV station in Springfield, Illinois, was fired because he complained on the air about a corporate requirement that they used the graphic that said uh, code red day at the beginning of the weathercast to describe the fact that the weather in the area would include the possibility of some, some severe thunderstorms that day. He thought it was hype. And if he just thought that, uh, probably wouldn't have gotten him fired, even if he said, well, maybe this is overdone or something like that. The thing is, he pointedly said on the air that locally they weren't down with any uh, code red day business, but the out-of-town corporation, in this case it was Sinclair out of Baltimore, was making them do it in Springfield, Illinois. He thought it was overselling the threat. You have a thought? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm not overly familiar with this exact exactly how it played out. I don't know exactly how severe the storms were looking that day. But there seems to be a problem with somebody that's not a meteorologist telling a meteorologist that they need to offer a, a certain, you know, warning type of day. Um, you know, I bet the intention on these are good, on these, you know, code reds, whatever the day is. The problem is, like anything else, it can get used and abused. And, you know, if you take away nuance and you take away, uh, you know, when these should be used and it, it switches from serving the public and raising awareness to, hey, let's get some eyeballs on this, which could happen, I'm sure, then the people aren't going to pay attention to it anymore. Right. After it's, you do it day after day and nothing happens, then it doesn't mean anything anymore. So the forecast that day was for isolated tornadoes in that part uh, of Illinois. Now, the thing is that if they just show up on the newscast and they call it Code Red Day, well, what happened to the whole rest of your broadcast day? If it's that bad, why aren't you already talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. So having something for an extreme weather day doesn't seem out out of the realm of uh, reasonableness to me, but mm -hmm. but decorating newscasts, uh, then it just seems false. And I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, decades ago, when I was a news director in Louisville, Kentucky, I came up with something called 32 Alive. That was the name of the TV station, Channel 32. 32 Alive Snow Power. And when 32 Alive Snow Power went into effect, we went on the air at the top of every hour and actually covered up the network programming or, or whatever with an announcement on where the forecast for the snowstorms uh, stood that was uh, supposedly coming and the status of local schools. And we only did a minute or two minutes, but the idea was that if snow power was, into effect, was in effect, we would have this regular around-the-clock coverage. Now, there was no Internet then. There was no phone to get updates on. So... So that was a, a, an idea, but it meant that programming was going to change. So even to this day, that makes sense to me. Uh, but I think uh, I agree with you that it's a little dangerous when, you, when the decision is made by someone other than the meteorologist on how to describe the severity of the, uh, the, the forecast. So, okay, so let's, uh, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about... Uh, Miami. Uh, first of all, I, I do want to talk about uh, Miami and one other thing. If you are in the city of Miami, if you are a resident of the city of Miami, City of Miami is going to open two parking garages for residents in case of a hurricane. But you have to register and you have to do it this month. Why it has to be this month is crazy thing number one. Crazy thing number two is they call it Miami Vehicular Protection. 
so don't go on the website looking for anything about hurricanes. It's Miami Vehicular Protection. And so it's MiamiParking.com. If you're a resident of the city of Miami, you want to park your car in a parking garage for free if there's a hurricane threat, uh, go on there, look under customers, and find Miami Vehicular Protection. All right, let's bring in uh, Dr. Paul George now from the History Miami Museum. He does the, the tours through the museum and also uh, a wonderful project called the Miami History Channel. Uh, Paul is a former history professor, a lifelong resident of Miami. If you're into uh, Miami history, Paul and his cohort, Casey Paquette, do wonderful podcasts, uh, uh, which I listen to all the time, on the Miami History Channel website. That's MiamiHC.com. And today we're going to talk about uh, key hurricanes that hit Miami, how they changed the trajectory of South Florida history. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be here. Look at you, too. Great to see you all and talk with you. And it's, uh, as, as you know, I'm, I'm a, a aficionado of Miami history, and and I so love your uh, your tours, and, and I'm just so amazed at, at your wealth of knowledge. But So so let's talk about it. Uh, Paul, in, in the 1980s, I spent a lot of time in downtown uh, Dade County Library and the History Museum looking for interesting stories, mostly history stories. Uh, to tell neighborhood weather stories here on Channel 10 in, in the 80s. And it became clear that not only did South Florida have an incredibly rich history, which many folks that have moved here um, not too long ago may not even know, and it's full of interesting stories to tell, but it has an unappreciated, I think, hurricane history that we can learn from. In the 20th century, the eye of a hurricane came over down, down Miami. This is the eye over downtown twice in 1906, 1926, 1935, 1948, 1950, and 1964. The official National Hurricane Center record shows a hurricane of at least a strong Category 3 strength. It came over Miami Beach in Miami in August of 1888, pushing storm surge 14 feet high. And the record acknowledges it could have been a stronger storm than the official 125 miles per hour. But information is scant, to say the least. So, Paul... Uh, what was South Florida and the Miami area like in 1888, and why would we know so little about what happened here? Well, Brian, Luke, uh, it was just really a wilderness. It was uh, truly a frontier. Uh, hardly anybody lived here. Uh, to show you how uh, small the population was, the Florida State Census of 1895 found just nine people living at the mouth of the Miami River on both banks, the Rickles and the Tuttles. But we did have some homesteading communities by 1888, other than downtown Miami. Today's little Haiti, uh, parts that were known as Lemon City, Coconut Grove was moving pretty quickly in a pretty established direction. Uh, there was Buena Vista, where the design district is today. And everything, of course, looked out of the bay, because that was your expressway onto the mainland itself. And so you did have some small homesteading communities that would have been impacted by the hurricane of 1888. Uh, the downtown area we know today, we just have hardly any information on that for that particular year. But uh, I can just tell you it was very sparse. The Brickell Avenue neighborhood, 
was property owned by the Brickles, and it was very, very sparsely populated, probably just the Brickles and some of their workers, and that would have been it. So we didn't really have um, the institutional framework to record, uh, to attempt to deal with this hurricane that we would have later once incorporation came in 1896 and thereafter. So we're incorporated in 1896, so it's just 10 years after the city of Miami was incorporated. There was a Category 1 hurricane that hits in June 1906. So we're past 1888. Now we're in 1906. We don't hear much about this hurricane. Uh, And then, same year, 1906, a very consequential Category 3 hurricane comes from the south. It blows across the Keys and right over downtown Miami in October. Can you tell us about what was going on in 1906 now and these storms' effects? Well, it's interesting because the city grew quickly. Despite some early adversity, it began to grow very quickly. And so 1906 was 10 years out from the corporation. You had a population in 1900 of 1,681 people. By 1910, rounded off to 5,500 people. So you had you know, several thousand people living in the area when that, uh, that nasty hurricane of 06 hit. And you're so correct when you say that uh, it's been overlooked so much. Um, I ran upon it in a couple of different ways, and I'll make this short and succinct. For example, in the city cemetery, there's a large burial area within the cemetery, the oldest cemetery in the city of Miami, that was bought by the FEC. And in that, in unmarked graves, are more than 50 workers for the FEC Railway who were drowned as part of that hurricane of 06 when the captain of a ship uh, bringing these guys down to the early construction phase on the overseas railroad that was being built between 1905 and 1912, apparently the boat just got chopped up and capsized somewhere off of Elliott Key. Bodies were retrieved and eventually brought over there. The, uh, the outpouring of grief in the newspapers in the next many days, it was headline stuff day after day, was really alerted me to it. I had no idea about it until maybe... 10, 15 years ago, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it kind of hit my psyche. So it was nasty. It also sent a water surge uh, into the downtown area. And, of course, many people, if not the majority of the population, uh, not only worked and shopped downtown, but they lived downtown. So it had a big impact uh, on the banks of the Miami River. Uh, so that that is often overlooked. But I think as more and more people come across it, and we've seen it in different history things, I think the Miami History Channel, I think we talked about it, too, in one of our episodes. Uh, you begin to get an appreciation for its intensity and also how uh, imprudent the pilot of that ship was uh, who would take his men uh, with a storm bearing down on them uh, into Biscayne Bay, down Biscayne Bay, and uh, obviously they never made it down there. And that was all part of Flagler's railroad project, this really eighth wonder of the world kind of uh, project to take the railroad right. from Miami to Key West. And it had a major impact on that project as well. That that hurricane really affected how they built that railroad in the end. All right. It did. It did. All right, Paul, and uh, talking about that, that Keys project, in, in 1909 and through the 19-teens, three significant hurricanes hit the Keys, one in 1909, and uh, one in 1910, and then 100 years ago this year, the 1919 hurricane, which was significant in the Lower Keys, uh, sunk a cruise ship. And we'll talk more about that on a future podcast uh, this uh, season because that uh, was such an interesting story, and, of course, it was exactly 100 years ago. But let's jump to the mid-20s in Miami. The boom of all times is going on, 
in <laughs> the winter of 1925 going into 1926. But when January of 1926 came, things started to go wrong. It started with a ship and then September with the great Miami hurricane. Tell us that story. The biggest, probably the well, biggest the year in the history of the city of Miami. It was a fantastic year, Brian. I was researching a, a dissertation at Florida State many years ago for my Ph.D. in history, and uh, I took Miami as a topic. I knew very little about it at the time, even though I'd grown up here. And lo and behold, uh, I'm into the 20s. I'm into that magical year, 1925, and I'm just floored by all the developmental and real estate activity going on and how this area that had been sort of like a frontier town becomes, as a result of that boom, an emerging metropolitan area, and the boom hit its peak in the late summer of 1925. As you indicated, it's beginning to decline, uh, not quite imperceptibly, but decline period uh, by the beginning of 26, and then the Prince Valdemar, a ship being retrofitted into a floating cabaret, mind you, during National Prohibition, in the Turn Basin in Biscayne Bay, uh, goes down, and it blocks a lot of vessels with building supplies coming into the Port of Miami, which at that point, uh, was about where Maurice Ferrey Park is today, the Bayfront Park today, near the Art Museum in downtown Miami. So that was one of the many factors, and it was a very important factor, that slowed down the boom. And that boom is pretty much close to dissipating by the time that mighty hurricane of September 17, 1826 hit. And as you said, that whole period was larger than life, and that hurricane was absolutely larger than life. It's hard to imagine... And, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Doctor. Okay, and that's okay. No, I'm, I'm all ears. Yeah. All right. No, but uh, yeah. So talk about the 1926 hurricane and the lasting effect of it. I mean, it was uh, the biggest event to uh, biggest hurricane ever to hit downtown Miami, among many. But also, uh, when we look at the uh, reanalysis today, and the scientists that do this kind of thing, and the economists. Uh, imagine what would happen today if the 1926 hurricane came along again. They say it would be the most expensive hurricane in the history of the United States on the order of $200 billion. So talk about what the 1926 hurricane did to Miami and South Florida and how it uh, changed or uh, maybe didn't change the trajectory. It certainly slowed things down. Well, it's amazing. And again, uh, let's use that term larger than life. It was indeed that. It was in two phases. Uh, Richard Gray is in downtown Miami at the old Federal District Courthouse, which was at Northeast First and First. It's a 1912 building that's an absolute jewel, still standing, ready to be retrofitted into a bar and a brewery. And uh, he saw it coming, of course, with uh, whatever weather indicators he had in his office. He ran up that red flag by the night of September 17th. Uh, the hurricane struck in the wee hours of the morning, and then there was a break around 6 a.m., and a lot of people came out of their homes and wherever looking around to assess the damage. Uh, unbeknownst to them, that was phase one that was over. Now phase two was ready to bear down on them. The eye came, and then there was a fury behind the eye. And Gray, meanwhile, was downstairs yelling, you got to get into protection. you got to get into your homes or doors or wherever you have to go. Just take refuge somewhere. And that hurricane, as you've indicated, came right through downtown. And I, I've always thought uh, the most jarring example of its devastation was the Meyer-Kaiser building. It was built during the boom. It was completed sometime in the summer of 25, 17 floors. The top 10 floors were twisted and damaged so badly that they were loped off the building. So uh, 
you know, for me, that was the, the great symbol. Then it just continued to proceed straight west. It nipped the northern edge of Coral Gables, did a lot of devastation there, and then was out into the hinterland. But um, uh, the, the American Red Cross came in right away, God bless them, as they did with uh, Hurricane Andrew. They assessed the number of homeless people at 43,000, which is absolutely unbelievable. A lot of the homes were wood frame. You didn't have the building codes of today or even yesterday. Uh, the flooding was severe. The, uh, the water surge along the bayfront, keep in mind Bayfront Park's brand new. The waters of the bay came right through that brand new park into the Everglades Hotel, the Columbus Hotel, the McGallis. This was the first skyline in South Florida and just went deep into downtown. So every uh, malign symptom of a hurricane was evidenced by that hurricane of 26. Uh, Paul, the the Meyer Kaiser building isn't it still there? Isn't the bottom bottom it's still there? And you know exactly, it's still there, Brian. Very much so. And if you look at it, you know you can tell it's kind of like a rumped building. It looks it's at too big of a base for too few floors. It's probably about five floors in the building. What's interesting to note is there was all that eternal optimism. Some was probably feigned in the aftermath of the hurricane, and the uh, the talk then was we're going to re- we're going to build up those floors. We had a lope off. And we're going to make it to a hotel. Well, it never happened. So it's a truncated building as it is, so an absolute truncated building. Still there, just has the base, but the the other it has the base. That's wow. like the top five or six floors. It's uh, it's oh there in downtown exactly. Miami today. Yeah. That is exactly. just exactly. It's on Northeast First Street, a little bit east of Northeast First Avenue. Um, I just can't can't imagine how much the wind got taken out of the sails of the boom after just such a huge two huge blows back to back like that. Right. Uh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, that, too. that was it. That was it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because we're a city, especially then, you know, based around tourism as well as real estate. The real estate's defunct, so you got to really hit the tourist marketing hard. And uh, we came out of that, uh, our city leaders, the Chamber of Commerce, the governor of Florida saying, hey, we'll be back on our feet ready for the new tourist season of 26-27. Well, the reality was we weren't. And we slipped into, with the demise of the boom and the destruction of the hurricane, an economic depression three years before the rest of the nation. Uh, no doubt about that. Well, we but, uh, fortunately, we reemerged from or emerged from that depression, as I see it, by the second half of the 30s. And the best example would be all the construction in the Art Deco district and beyond. Uh, commercial aviation really lent a good hand to us. A new building, a surge in tourism. A lot of it was like middle class tourism, union workers who had some kind of subsidized or partly subsidized vacations. And so things did turn. Uh, for the better in that second half of the 1930s. Let's go back to the 20s for a minute because we just get smashed in 26. And then just two years later, there's this other massive hurricane that was coming. Now, it just demolished Puerto Rico. It had winds even stronger than we had with Maria in 2017. It was headed towards South Florida. It actually missed Miami or spared Miami somewhat. It did hit Palm Beach, and then it moved on to Lake Okeechobee, and that's what this one is now known as the Lake Okeechobee Hurricane of 28. It became one of the deadliest storms on record. What happened with that storm, and how did it affect South Florida? Well, it blew out a portion of the Hoover Dyke, which had, was a sort of a mud dyke that uh, was constraining the waters of the lake. Again, we're about two decades into Everglades drainage at this point, so everything's changing ecologically. Very long story short, it blew it out, and it just flooded areas like uh, Bell Glade and Moore Haven, leading to the death, at least the recorded deaths, of over 1,860 people in those two towns, which are farming towns. 
farming towns created through grain in the Everglades, you know, sugar and other things like that being cultivated there. Absolutely brutal. I remember reading a book and using it in one of the classes I taught, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Her Eyes Were Watching God, and, uh, and she recounts that in that novel, and I mean, it's so graphic. So it just, you know, it just did such wide destruction to the area, and it would prompt, you know, the construction of a better dam in the aftermath, but you can't bring back those lost lives. It, uh, it was just a black mark in the, in the whole area uh, for a long time. And many of the workers, uh, most of the workers, I guess, were African-American, too, and they weren't treated uh, appropriately and uh, ended up in a mass grave in West Palm Beach that wasn't really discovered until a long time later because it wasn't marked. The, the graves of the white folks that were killed in that uh, were treated in a completely different kind of way. So there's right. that, that know, legacy Brian, as well. That's really, that's really part of that second-class citizenship. You could go back two years before that. Look at the hurricane at 26 in Miami. The National Guard came through, and then city officials came through, and they actually commandeered many of the black males in what was then called Colored Town into that hurricane cleanup. And many of them, of course, were tending to families that had been really hurt by the hurricane. And they were just pushed onto trucks, and they were taken to places to begin this massive cleanup. And then uh, right after the 1928, the great 1928 storm, 1929, there was a very bad hurricane in the Bahamas. Everybody in Miami and South Florida scared to death. It was coming this way. It ended up skirting south of Miami across the Keys as it weakened. And then we skip to 1935 because 1935 was uh, there were two hurricanes. 1935 was the most consequential year for hurricanes in South Florida. There was the incredible Category 5 hurricane that hit the Upper Keys over the Matacombe, Upper and Lower Matacombe Keys uh, primarily. And a strange storm that hit Miami, came right over downtown Miami from the northeast in November called the Yankee Hurricane, which wasn't quite, uh, which wasn't really a terribly consequential storm, but would do damage today if it uh, came in. But let's talk about the 1935 storm, especially that storm in the Keys, Paul, and, and how uh, Miami and the Keys uh, changed as a result of that storm. Well, it's interesting, Brian. We, we ducked the worst in Miami, but uh, as we know, that whole Isla Mirada area just got hit so terribly. And what happened was you had a lot of vets of World War One who were working on federally funded projects, you know, building projects, repair projects, the infrastructure, as you call it today, under the auspices of the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, that's where they're being paid, uh, I think we were beginning to feel a sense of guilt. Uh, a lot of men had marched on Washington veterans of World War One in 1932, asking their, that their pensions, which were just a pittance from their service in World War One, be paid then because they were out of jobs, they had families. Uh, President Hoover ordered the Army to break up that camp on the Mall. Very long story short, I, I think we were, this is now the Roosevelt administration, his New Deal. We felt pretty contrite about that. Uh, there were lots of work to be done in the Florida Keys. And so these men were working down there, many hundreds of them, when that mighty storm bore down on the Keys and um, a killer hurricane, by all means, hitting the Matacumbi area. And um, we, as that storm picked up steam, uh, the FEC Railway here in Miami had a plan working with the government to evacuate as many of those vets as possible working on those projects. The problem was there were a couple of glitches, uh, both in downtown Miami where the station was located with, for the train and also 
the trestle that will allow the train to cross the Miami River. It arrived there about five to six hours late um, after, after it was supposed to arrive. The, um, the, on the locomotive, the pilot of the locomotive, actually because the driving rain um, went beyond where he was supposed to stop to begin to pick up these workers and help them evacuate. And by that time, this enormous water surge, I've seen some estimates of 16 feet, I uh, just swept every one of those railroad cars with the exception of the locomotive off the tracks. And uh, there were hundreds of men who lost their lives. Now, what's especially poignant for Miamians was the fact that about 115 bodies of these veterans were brought back to Miami. There was a huge ceremony. Imagine how hot and humid it is immediately after Labor Day in Miami. A big ceremony for them uh, in Bayfront Park. President Roosevelt asked the Democratic governor of Florida, David Schultz, to, to be there representing him. Uh, they were prepared for burial at a Filbert funeral home in today's East Little Havana, then known as Riverside. And there's a mass grave in Woodlawn Park, in the west side of Woodlawn Park on 32nd Avenue and Southwest 8th Street, with a big American flag and, um, you know, a, a marker that indicates that these men lost their lives in that type of work. Uh, but I'll tell you something. We grieved in this community, even though we were spared the worst. Uh, it meant the end of the FEC Railway and the Overseas Railroad. It never ran again. It, it was not a moneymaker to begin with. But the FEC really said, we're not going to do this anymore. And what happened instead was uh, there had been some construction around Key Largo going back to the 1920s, what becomes the Overseas Highway. And now there was a full-blown uh, program to build that Overseas Highway to make up for the fact you had nothing but a seed connection between the Keys and mainland Florida. And so that highway was completed in 1938-39. They moved very quickly on that. So now at least you had a roadway, and of course, a lot of it was built over those viaducts that had, uh, had hosted the FEC Railway. An amazing story when you think about all the factors that were part of this story. Uh, but that, in a, in a very small nutshell, is a description of a hurricane whose winds uh, apparently reached about 200 miles an hour, one of the most powerful hurricanes ever. Yeah, and uh, did a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah, officially 185 is the sustained wind, but with the gusts well over 200, more like a tornado, really. And the lowest pressure yeah. that had ever been recorded on land, right, from a hurricane in the world. Yeah, yeah, in the world. Exactly. Uh, hey, let's fast forward to the 40s. A bad decade for hurricanes in South Florida, especially from 45 to 1950. There was a significant hurricane or multiple hurricanes almost every year. There was only 1946 was missed. In those six years, what stands out from those 40 storms and the lasting effect from them? Well, uh, in my estimation, as an historian, if you want me to jump in on this, Luke, the thing that stands out are those photographs of downtown Fort Lauderdale, downtown Hialeah, parts of downtown Miami Springs that were underwater. And in the case of Fort Lauderdale, I've done a lot of writing on Fort Lauderdale history for upwards of four or five weeks. And so the end result of that is the creation of what becomes the South Florida Water Management District, that our fear then was too much water. Uh, and this, this flooding, of course, was an example of one of those storms. That is, I should say two storms, the storms of uh, September 47 and October 47. But another thing I think really jumps out as a result of those hurricanes, the one in 45 was, was considered about the deadliest as Hurricane of 26, at least for the Miami area. I mean, it just wreaked havoc in South Dade, absolute havoc. One community after another was hit. 
There was flooding, water surges, and of course, it destroyed that huge reconnaissance blimp base that we had built in World War II just a handful of years before that. It led to the destruction of 25 airplanes and all sorts of machinery that was found. Those those blimp that blimp reconnaissance base, the hangar, three hangars, continuous to one another, were 16 stories in height. And parts of them were toppled, fire broke out, and it just destroyed everything. It was said that prior to that, you could be in the courthouse, in the upper built, the upper floor of the Dade County Courthouse in downtown Miami, and you could see clearly on a clear day that large blimp base. Uh, but no more, not after that September 45 hurricane. So uh, it was it was destructive. Uh, a downtown homestead, for example, was flooded out for weeks. Uh, and it and also, for me, it's kind of a preview of. Uh, future hurricanes entering our area from the extreme south, at least extreme southern parts of the county, including, of course, Hurricane Andrew. Yeah, it was a preview of Andrew. The, the path of that 1945 storm was similar to Andrew. And, and Paul, if you, as you know, if you go down to Zoo Miami now or you go to the Gold Coast Railroad Museum there right next to Zoo Miami, you'll see right. one huge concrete stanchion that is left from those uh, incredibly large hangars that that housed blimps, big surveillance blimps that they were, they flew around the coast of Florida looking for Nazi submarines in World War II, and so that's what. And then there were also fighter planes stored inside those those hangars for uh, for protection from the hurricane as well. But that the one kind of legacy of that of that whole event and that whole place is uh, left down there by the zoo. Well, it is. And, and Brian, to underline what you said, the scale of that particular plant was so amazing. Look at what's left now, the stanchion, the remnants of it. Just the scale was just outrageous. And it's interesting, uh, just to digress a tiny bit, you know, it is said that when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, one of the leading military officials in Japan said, now we've lost the war. The implication was the United States will build what it has to build to win the war. And, and that's a great example of it down there. You know, the massive building that went on so quickly, too. Yes, and there were a number of, of uh, installations around South Florida related to, to World War II. And that was, I don't know if that was the biggest, but that was a massive one. Uh, Paul, let's move to the uh, 1950s or skip uh, through the 1950s for South Florida because it was relatively quiet here after 1950. A bunch of hurricanes went up the East Coast into the Northeast. That was the, a real turning point period in 1944, or 1954, 1955 in the Northeast of New England. But then we get to 1960 and the first half of the 60s here in South Florida. And it's Hurricane Donna in 1960, Cleo in 64, and Betsy in 65. Did these storms slow the post-World War II uh, growth in South Florida, or were they just kind of blips in the sweep of history, or, or what's the legacy of those 1960 storms? Well, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Uh, each of them had great impact, and each of them did a lot of damage. Northern Florida Keys with Donna as well as even Spiltsville with Donna. Can you imagine 27 structures? On the eve of the hurricane, and today's what we call spill spill, 10 were either damaged severely or were destroyed by the hurricane. Uh, Key Biscayne itself was flooded. Parts were underwater. It's just now becoming a residential community. Had only been underway for about 10 years. Uh, a Cleo, maybe not as destructive as you indicated, the flooding all over Miami with Cleo was absolutely amazing. Betsy was, once again, very destructive. Use the barometer, once again, of spill spill. 
because after Donna, they rebuilt a lot of those damaged or almost destroyed structures. But once again, Betsy came through and knocked down everything but about 10 structures. Uh, but uh, we were on such a population binge then that it did not slow down, as I see it, the development of Miami and Southeast Florida. Suburbia continued to grow like crazy, pulling people away from the center city neighborhoods, as we know. We had reached, Bay County had reached a million people in 62. By 93, 94, we reached 2 million. And hold on to your hats, according to the latest census count, we are now just a couple hundred thousand under 3 million people in Miami-Dade County. You know, I don't think it really slowed down things, and I, I think it was a blimp. But one of the things I wanted to mention, too, in preparation for Clio, we came up with some kind of a game plan because there were a lot of boats in the area. A lot of them are close to the bay or a lot of them even closer to the ocean. And we raised all the bridges over the Miami River. There's about nine bridges. We raised them all for a period of several hours. And we had like a flotilla of boats that were moving upriver as far as they could go, usually past 22nd Avenue. That would be ideal just to avoid more angry waters that would have been east of them. And I've seen photographs of that. It's a very fascinating process. Which people still do. They, they, if they can, if they have the money and they have the wherewithal, they move their boats up the river. You know, uh, you talked about, Paul, uh, Donna and Betsy, and we talk about them because they had a significant effect on Miami. But Donna went over Marathon and Fort Myers, the center. Just shows you how big yeah. a hurricane that was. It, it covered the entire state of Florida. Uh, it was kind of a Hurricane Irma sort of situation. And although it was much, much stronger uh, than Irma and much uh, bigger, I think, than Irma. And Betsy went over the center, went over Key Largo, but still drove water over Key Biscayne, uh, destroyed uh, Stiltsville just south of Key Biscayne, put water into the hotels on Miami Beach. So uh, this is a bit of a fallacy, I think, Luke, for for people trying to track where the center of the storm is going. Just because the center of the storm doesn't come over you doesn't mean you can't have uh, dramatic effects. One of the ongoing and struggles. It really did. You know, Brian, it also could find people on Key Biscayne, at least by automobile, to the Key for a couple of weeks. It cut a barge loose from its mooring, banged into the third bridge of the Rickenbacker Causeway. You didn't have any automotive traffic for a long while there. Uh, so it was destructive in so many different ways. So we, I'm sure, you know, South Florida residents, they are well-versed in the impacts of hurricanes in the 60s. And then, that we're there. Mm-hmm, then things go quiet for quite a while. 27 years is where we jump to next. And we have really what is the first modern hurricane in Hurricane Andrew. And we still live with what Hurricane Andrew brought to South Florida. How did Andrew change things, Dr. George? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, we all know how devastating it was. Um, nobody knows better than Brian uh, after covering that and monitoring that so closely. But it's, it's interesting because... There were some positive things long-term that came out of it. One, of course, would be uh, a stronger building code in South Florida. Another thing would be, as part of that, hurricane windows, but also a lot of people bought shutters, maybe for the first time. Laws were passed requiring supermarkets, gas stations, hospitals to be equipped with generators. Uh, and all sorts of emergency response vehicles, emergency response exercises were going on at the time. Uh, so I, I uh, are, are being provided for uh, as a result of Hurricane Andrew. But then on the negative side, not just the, the devastation and the, um, I think, the hopelessness and helplessness a lot of people experienced, but, but also I think another element of that would be an effect that set in soon after, and that would be a partial depopulation.
location of places like Homestead and Florida City and people moving to Broward and the impact in those communities. The community bank, for example, in Homestead felt it very strongly. So much of what they'd had in terms of their liquid and their, and their bank was withdrawn as people moved to different places. Uh, and again, uh, Broward, suburban Broward is one of the beneficiaries, but others just got the, the heck out altogether. Uh, so I think that was another, you know, another element of that hurricane. But, uh, you know, it was the mother of all hurricanes. Uh, somewhere along the way, I saved the, uh, the newspapers, the Miami Herald, for about uh, the day that it hit and for the next seven or eight or nine days. Just those headlines are just captivating uh, about the hurricane, its damage. Uh, you know, we all have personal stories, too. It's, it was crazy, crazy. But somehow we've come back. And it's interesting also, I was working on a history. I wrote a book. Uh, of South Dade. It came out in 1995, so I was down there researching that thing a couple years before that, and I can remember that whole effect of Homestead. It was quiescent down there uh, much of the time, but there's been that enormous building boom in recent years and decades down there, uh, uh, among other things. So, you know, we have this resiliency down here. I think probably just as Americans, we have a pretty good resiliency. Yeah, one of the things that happened is, of course, a good part of Homestead, was destroyed, but also a good part of Kendall was severely damaged. And people, uh, a lot of Kendallites of the early 90s ended up populating southwest Broward because back in those days, there was really not much west of I-75 in Pembroke Pines. It was, that was more or less, what was that, farm fields out there, I guess, right? And, and right. Uh, undeveloped anything, area. Yeah. There was really nothing out there. And now it's full all the way up to the Everglades. So, um, Hurricane Andrew made that move, made many people move out of South Dade uh, into uh, Broward. But now it's all full. <laughs> it's pretty much all full. And although uh, there is this all this building going on down in the Homestead area, because that's one of the places where there still is some land. A lot of agricultural land is being converted. And, of course, downtown Miami, uh, all the conversion of, of properties there. But, Paul, it raises the question of if you had a hurricane Andrew happen again. Where would the people go? There, there wouldn't well, be uh, wouldn't be places it's a to go. Huge question, Brian. You know, it's, it's crazy. About uh, two or three years after Andrew struck, uh, I conducted a tour for some insurance executives of Coconut Grove, and um, among them was a man who was president of the association. And I asked him the question. I said, "I figured this is about 1995." I said, "What would have happened had Andrew hit downtown Miami?" He said, "Had it hit downtown Miami." It would have put a lot of insurance businesses out of business and would have probably closed downtown for a handful of years. And, and he, he's speaking nearly 25 years ago. Right. We have now the third venture skyline in the United States after New York and Chicago. You can imagine what would happen today. You know, water surges, wind damage. Oh, my God. It's just it's improbable what would happen. Well, yeah, an infrastructure collapse. The thing is, if you lose the water system and the electrical system and things like that, then you can't operate even if the buildings uh, stand up and do pretty well because they're built like battleships. You still have the infrastructure problems because and bridges and and so forth because uh, storm surge is is really hard on everything that's in the ground or anything uh, near the ground. It is, and we've had speak previous Brian on Brickell Avenue with both Wilma and Irma. How it floods just so insanely and it just kind of shuts down things for a while. There, it's absolutely amazing the way it was impacted. Yeah, if we uh, had a 1926-type storm surge or Hurricane Andrew farther north, I mean, it would be a whole different order of magnitude, a different kind of uh, impact. 
Paul, thank you so much. Uh, before you thank go, you. would you uh, be sure everybody knows, first of all, how do they sign up for a Dr. Paul George tour? Well, I'd love to have him join us, and I must do with History of Miami maybe 125 tours a year. It's just been it's been such a ball doing it. I've enjoyed it so much. They could um, they could go online to City Tours, one word, City Tours at HistoryMiami.org. There'll be a schedule there of the tours, or they can just call the education department. A, a young lady named Hannah Squires takes care of my tours and talks, and that's uh, 305-375. 1621. And that's a History Miami, right? A History Miami. History Miami. Right, okay. Right. Brian, I'm a lucky guy that's been able to segue from teaching at Miami-Dade College for nearly 30 years into this resident historian position at uh, History Miami. I've been really lucky about that. You know, this lateral shift in jobs. But, hey, I've always been lucky all my life. (laughs) Well, you've been in Miami. And, and, uh, Paul, before you go, tell us uh, briefly about the Miami History Channel, your project. The Miami History Channel is marvelous. Um, it's put together, as you indicated, uh, by Casey Paquette and myself, and we began to do episodes, which includes not just narrative, but some wonderful photographs that embellish each of the episodes. We've covered uh, the chronology of Miami-Dade County's history. We've covered topics like hurricanes or athletics or uh, neighborhoods, and um, they can go to the Miami History Channel. I, I think you had... Um, the, the website address, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, MiamiHC.com, MiamiHC.com. MiamiHC.com, and for just $29.95, uh, you can enlist uh, for a year of these History Miami episodes, and they will find them remarkable. It's a very easy way to learn in a very profound way Miami's history, and I would really recommend it to anybody who's listening to us. All right, Paul. Dr. Paul George of uh, History Miami Museum and the Miami History Channel. And if you ever want to find out what Paul's doing, just if you just Google Dr. Paul George Miami, you're going to find it. Uh, Google knows uh, everything. So, Paul, uh, thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you, seeing you on a, a tour sometime here soon. And I'm sure we'll run into each other in Miami. So thanks a lot. Thanks a million, Brian. Thanks, Luke. Yes, sir. Thank you. So, you know, all this came about uh, in terms of my my um, interaction with hurricanes here and my understanding of the impact of hurricanes in Miami from my time at the Miami History Museum today called History Miami when I was uh, searching for neighborhood weather stories, as I said, all here on, on Channel 10 back in the 80s. And I realized, oh, my God, if we ever started having hurricanes here like we had in the past, like we only talked about some of them. <laughs> we didn't talk about all of them. And we didn't talk about the scares where everybody got all geared up, but then, you know, it ended up not being that big a deal or uh, just, you know, kind of faded into history because you had these other ones that were so much stronger. It's really, uh, it's hard to imagine in sort of the modern world how all that would play out. Well, just like you were talking, we were looking at what the 40s. Mm-hmm. And 45 to 50, it just uh, unimaginable. It's like it, there's a feeling of, oh, we paid our due. We a had Category 4 hurricane every year except for 1946. So you had a Category 4 in 45, 47, 48, 49, and 50. And in 47 and 48, you also had a Category 1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, how did they endure that? And what would well, we do today? Well, now, now, to be fair— the, the, the 45 one hit South Dade. Now, the thing is, it's, 
where they hit is one thing. Where people thought they were going to hit is something else. And it'll be the same thing today. Sure. Obviously, we don't know exactly where it's going to hit. But 45 hit South Dade. It was more or less a Hurricane Andrew kind of thing, but had a little more effect in downtown than, than Andrew did. And uh, 47, you had the giant Category 4 hurricane that hit Fort Lauderdale, most of the damage being in unpopulated North Broward and Southern Palm Beach County. And then in October 47, it came from the other direction, again went over Fort Lauderdale, but both of those significantly affected Miami. 48, you had two storms come from the west and the south, come over South Florida, kind of back-to-back in a big flood scenario again, but not as big as 47. 49, the storm ended up hitting West Palm Beach. And in 1950, came right over downtown Miami, but it was a little tiny storm called Hurricane King. So, you know, the difference was it was a different kind of city. You didn't have so many people uh, in packed together in tall buildings. People lived in one-story homes. One-story homes are easier to protect because the wind is not as strong right at the surface as it is when you build the building up and get it away from the trees and you know if the building sticks up above everything else the building gets a lot stronger wind so it was just just a a a different place and a different time and and not so many people correct me if i'm wrong 45 wasn't there a possibility that there was flood water all the way across south florida somewhere from fort lauderdale going all the way well that was 47. 47 so during the two storms that paul was talking about the september big hurricane that went across uh Fort Lauderdale and on up and actually ended up being a, a significant hurricane in New Orleans. It was a South Florida to New Orleans a kind of storm like Betsy was in 65 and, and, and Andrew almost was. Yeah. Uh, and then and then on top of it, a slow moving storm in October. But it had been a very wet year already in 47. So as a result of that, uh, that's when the South Florida Water Management District was uh, proposed and eventually by the early 50s went into effect. So they put in flood control structures and and, uh, improved the situation. Not that anybody thinks if we had a tremendous amount of rain in South Florida, something even uh, not even as much as Harvey in Houston, but, you know, some incredible slow moving kind of hurricane. uh, The water in the western parts, the most populated parts of uh, Miami-Dade and Broward County would just sit there because there, it's a flat place. And remember, the western parts of the county are lower than the eastern parts of the county. Mm-hmm. So the only way for that water to get out is to go out those canals, and it's flat. So uh, even though the South Florida Water Management District will try and manage it, and will try, if they see the hurricane coming, they'll lower the water table to take more water in the ground uh, nobody thinks that it won't be a massive flood. And that's why all the new homes that are built and have been built over the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years, uh, if you go out in West Dade, uh, West Broward, they're kind of up on little hills. So you have the street, and then it goes down, and then the house goes up. Yeah. And, right? Because uh, the people that know these things know that the potential is there for a massive flood. Uh, no doubt better controlled than it uh, could have been in 1947. Still, Brian, you're scaring me. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it's paint a, a rosy a, picture, Brian. It's a precarious place, Luke. What can I say? But, uh, you know, it's where we live. So. Yeah. So we do it. You know, there's a, a, a quote that's kind of a famous quote. A guy named George uh, Santayana said this, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. 
Uh, Winston Churchill modified it a little bit and basically said the same thing because it is so important. So that's why we talk about hurricane history, because we're going to live here in the most likely place uh, on the U.S. coast to have a hurricane. We ought to understand what happened in the past to better prepare for what might happen in the future. If you'd like to send us uh, anything, any kind of information, any questions, anything you'd like to see us cover, uh, weatherpod at WPLG.com is our email address, weatherpod at WPLG.com. So that's it for uh, this episode. We'll be back uh, next month with a couple of episodes in July. We're going to take July 4th week off, and then we'll see you later on in the month. And we've got some big uh, things coming up already scheduled. So uh, just uh, follow our podcast, Brian Norcross Podcast, on your podcast app on Android or Apple, and it'll tell you when the podcast is uh, ready for you next time. So now for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross at the Local 10 WPLG Podcast Studio in Miami. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.